We're doing a sermon series in the Gospel of John. And I want you to know that the Gospel of John is very different than the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels are really similar so that they are called the synoptic Gospels. Sin means same, optic means view. Because uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, they follow the, bas- the same basic structure. They have the same, you know, more or less basic stories with some minor variations. But the Gospel of John is very different. You have much, much longer dialogues in the Gospel of John. You have this extended discussion on predestination. You have um, a series of uh, stories that you only find in John, the story of Nicodemus, the story of Lazarus. And one of the key distinctives of the Gospel of John is this scene in the upper room. Because if you look at the other three Gospels, uh, Jesus and the disciples, they gather together in the upper room and they have the Last Supper. And actually there's not a lot of dialogue. Jesus explains the meaning of the Supper. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. He predicts Peter's uh, denials, uh, Judas' betrayal. But then that's basically it. So that, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, you have 18 verses. It's about a third of a chapter. In the Gospel of Mark, you have 19 verses. In Luke, it's 27 verses. It's about half a chapter. But in the Gospel of John, the upper room scene, this upper room discourse, stretches on for five chapters. 155 verses. Eight times the length of Matthew and Mark six times the length of Luke, so that this scene in the upper room, which would have lasted maybe two, three hours, right? This three-hour window of time occupies 25% the Gospel of John. It is a central part of the story of John. It is critically important. And it's Jesus' final set of teachings to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And he begins the discourse by unsettling his disciples. And he tells them that he is going to depart from them. And he is going to return to the Father. And the disciples are distraught. They're greatly distressed at this. And in response, Jesus comforts his disciples. And this is the main thrust of the upper room discourse. He promises them the Holy Spirit. And so what you have in John, right, is this extended discussion on the Holy Spirit, which is by far the most detailed, the most developed, the most extended discussion on the Spirit, not only in the Gospels, in the entire New Testament. Only Romans 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, sort of rival comes close to the upper room discourse in John, but nothing else, I mean, nothing comes even close And so today we're going to, again, talk about the Spirit. And I want you to know it is a crucial doctrine. It is vital for your Christian life. And so with that, let's read um, John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. This is page 4 in your bulletin. I'll read it to you. 
But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have Many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of God. So I have three points. This is the outline. Number one, we're going to see the power of the Spirit. We're going to see, secondly, that Jesus is not enough. And then number three, we're going to see the ministry of the Spirit. So let's begin. The power of the Spirit. This is going to be a short point, but it's an important point. If you look at verse 7, you might have missed it because it goes by so quickly. Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. He says, it's to your advantage. The word advantage there is a Greek word which means profitable. So Jesus is saying, it is to your profit. He's saying, it is better for you. You'll be better off when I leave. Which is astonishing. And I want you to know that what Jesus is saying here is very strong because virtually everyone in this room, we say to ourselves, you know, if only I had been there. If only I could have seen the miracles with my own eyes. If only I could have heard Jesus' teachings from his own lips. Then I would be a different person. I would be completely changed and I would be full of passion and spiritual vitality, and there will be so much power and joy in my life. But here's the problem with that. Look at the disciples. Look at the disciples. They were with Jesus for three years, and they saw everything. And that very night, in just a few short hours, every single one of them is going to turn their back on Jesus, abandon him, and forsake him. When you look at the disciples, you see weakness. You see fear, unbelief. You know why? Because mere physical proximity to Jesus is not enough. Merely hearing the words of Jesus, even in the flesh, is not enough. In verse 12, listen to what Jesus says. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
there was so much more that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples, to show his disciples, but he couldn't. Why? Because of their hard hearts, because of their spiritual blindness. And this is why they were always arguing with him. They were always confused. They were always upset at what he was saying. They were always resisting what he was teaching them. But in the upper room, Jesus says, I'm going to put you in a better place when I send you my spirit. And then you will understand. And then you will believe. Look at the disciples before and after the Pentecost. Before Pentecost, the disciples are hiding. They're afraid. They don't know what to do. And then Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, comes. And then down comes the Spirit. And the the disciples, they're filled with courage and wisdom and love. And what you see is they're boldly preaching Christ in the streets of Jerusalem. They're gladly laying down their lives for one another. They're absolutely fearless. What happened? What changed? Jesus says, I will send you my spirit. Do you realize how powerful this is? Do you realize how life-changing this is? Even if you could build a time machine and go back and sit at Jesus' feet and hear the Sermon on the Mount in person, even if you could witness Lazarus being raised from the dead and you could smell the stench and the decay from the tomb, that would not be as good as what Jesus is offering because this is better. This is better than even having actually walked with Jesus on the earth. This will put you in a better place, in a better position than the disciples during Jesus' earthly ministry. Do you see how incredibly strong this is, what Jesus is offering us? We have no idea. So that's the first point, the power of the Spirit. Secondly, Jesus is not enough. Now, I purposely framed this to sound inflammatory because I want you to listen And bear with me, because this is going to sound strange. You need to understand that what Jesus came and accomplished is not enough to save you. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection by themselves is not enough to save you. Because there's something missing. And what is missing is the communication of what Jesus did. Look at what Jesus says in verse 14. Jesus says, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now that word declare is the Greek word angelo. Now angelo had a very specific, almost technical meaning in the ancient world. Angelo means to bring a report, it means to carry an official message. Because in the ancient world, people didn't have phones, they didn't have the internet. And so the way that you convey a message across large distances is that you would have to send a messenger bearing news. 
Because without a messenger, the people would not know. And so what is lacking in the saving work of Christ is a messenger to convey that salvation. So, imagine there's a city in the ancient world, and it's under threat. A foreign army is approaching. And so the king, he gathers his men together, and he goes out, and he meets the enemy, and he defeats them in the battlefield. And it's this great victory, and the city is saved. And then the king immediately he dispatches a messenger to run and to go back to the city and to proclaim, to angelo, the news of the victory. In fact, the Greeks had a specific word for this. They called it the euangelion. The Greek word eu means good. This is the good news of victory. And so let's analyze this, okay? When was the city saved? Was the city saved when the battle was won or when the news of that victory was, was, was delivered to the city? Which is it? And the answer, of course, is both. They're both necessary. Because until the messenger arrives, you see, the city hasn't experienced its salvation Until the good news is received, the people are still gripped by fear, anxiety, and dread. And it is only when the messenger is received that the benefits of that victory is produced in the city, the celebration of joy and this peace coming down on the city. And so Jesus' death and resurrection is his victory on the battlefield. And the Holy Spirit is the messenger that communicates that victory to our hearts. Do you understand? Or here's another way to put it. Salvation is a Trinitarian work. It's a Trinitarian work. It's the Father who sets His love on us and then who sends His Spirit, I mean, who sends His Son um, to rescue us. And then it's the Son who gladly obeys his Father, he goes to the cross to atone for our sins, to show us the love of God. And then it's the Spirit who is sent by the Father and the Son who communicates the love of God to our hearts. And so salvation is a Trinitarian work. We need the Father, we need the Son, we need the Holy Spirit. Every person in the Trinity has a vital role in our salvation. And so today we're going to look at what the Spirit does. So that leads me to my third point, the ministry of the Spirit. And here I'm going to break it down into three points, three sub-points, which is number one, the Spirit gives us Christ. Number two, the Spirit convicts us. And then number three, the Spirit makes us sons. So number one, or sub-point number one, the Spirit gives us Christ. In verse 14, Jesus says, The Spirit will glorify me. The Spirit will glorify me. Now in the Bible, the word glory means significance, weight, importance. And so what the Spirit does is He makes Jesus important in your life. He makes Jesus the most significant, 
the most weighty thing in your life. You see, for a lot of you in this room, you grew up in the church, you consider yourself a Christian, but Jesus is not glorious to you. He's just not. This is why you find his commandments to be burdensome. This is why you carefully measure out your devotion to him because you want to make sure that you don't give him too much. But the Spirit magnifies Christ. He makes Jesus dazzling and glorious in your eyes. And the best illustration that I've ever heard for this is by J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer wrote a book on the Holy Spirit called Keep in Step with the Spirit. And he says that the Holy Spirit is like a spotlight. Imagine a building in the dead of night. It's pitch dark. You can't see anything. And then the floodlights are switched on. And suddenly the building is lit up. And against the night sky, the the, the building is just brilliant. It's just shimmering in the darkness. And in fact, you can't see anything else. You don't see the surroundings. You don't see the other buildings. All you see is the building. That's what the Spirit does. He's a spotlight shining on Jesus. And listen to me. The point of the spotlight isn't so that you notice the spotlight. The floodlights, if they are done well, you don't even know where they're coming from. You don't even see the light itself But all you see is the building. And so people will say, you know, why don't we talk about the Spirit more? We should really focus on the Spirit. The Spirit is the forgotten person of the Trinity. You will hear this kind of language. He's the forgotten person. But listen, the role of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus. And so the sign that you are a spirit-filled person is not that you're always talking about the spirit, but you're always talking about Jesus. The sign that you are filled with the spirit is that Jesus becomes absolutely precious to you. He becomes your great treasure in this life so that everything else becomes secondary to him. So that's the first point. The Spirit gives us Christ. He glorifies Christ. Secondly, the Spirit convicts. Look with me to verse 8. When the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now this word convict is a word that was used in the courtroom. And the imagery is that you're sitting on the witness stand... And the Holy Spirit is cross-examining you. And he's confronting you with all of this data and all of this evidence. And you're trying to defend yourself, but you can't because it's overwhelming. And so your defenses fall down and you are cut to the heart. And so the Spirit convicts us of three things. And we're going to go them rather quickly. We could spend the whole sermon just on this. um, But we don't have the time, so let's go through them. Number one... These are like sub-points within sub-points, Russian nesting doll of points. But the first one is the Spirit convicts us 
of our sin. He convicts us of our sin. This doesn't just mean that the Spirit makes us feel bad about our sins. Because there's plenty of reasons apart from the Spirit that you can feel bad about your sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about there being a worldly grief about sins. What is worldly grief? You see, worldly grief is when you feel bad about the consequences of your sins. You feel bad about being caught in your sins. And basically, you feel sad for yourself. It's a selfish grief because you're basically just thinking about yourself. But the conviction of the Spirit is that you're not just sad about what your sins has done to you. You are sad about what your sins have done to God. And your heart is grieved at the offense that you have given to God. And therefore, you see the evil and the wickedness of what you have done. And in fact, you accept the rightness of the consequences. Even as you ask for mercy, even as you ask for forgiveness, you accept the justness of your punishment. You don't feel sorry for yourself. In Psalm 51, there's this great psalm that David wrote after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. And what happens is that the prophet Nathan, he's sent by God as a messenger to David, just like the Holy Spirit. And he confronts David for his sin, adultery with Bathsheba, murder of Uriah. And Nathan says, you are the man. And David, because of the Holy Spirit, when he hears this, he is cut to the heart and he is stricken with grief and sorrow for his sins. And in response, he writes this beautiful psalm of repentance. And in this psalm, he says something that is rather strange to the modern ear. He says in verse 4, he's saying this to God, he writes, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And it sounds strange to us because we, say, we want to say to David, but you sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. How can you say that your only sin was against God? But you see, what David realizes is that behind those sins was ultimately a sin against God. He wasn't just breaking the no murder rule. He wasn't just breaking the no adultery rule. But ultimately, he was violating his relationship with God. And by his disobedience, he was rejecting God. He was despising God. And so that was his principal sin. And so that's what the Spirit does. He convicts us of our sin, our sin against God. Secondly, The Spirit convicts us of our righteousness. This also sounds very strange, but this is very important. If you don't understand this, you don't understand Christianity. You see, the difference between a religious person and a Christian is that while a religious person repents of their sins, a Christian repents also of their righteousness. What do I mean by this? Listen, pretty easy to feel bad about your sins. 
it's pretty easy, especially if your sins have caused havoc and destruction in your life. It's pretty easy to feel bad. And what the typical person does is he says, okay, from now on, I'm going to shape up. I'm going to be a good person. And so if they have some measure of willpower, if they have some measure of self-control, they begin to clean up their life. They begin to behave like a good citizen. Maybe they start going to church. They start participating in religious activities. And what they are doing is they're trying to balance the scales. They're trying to make up for their sins. But the Bible says that's not repentance. Because you're not turning back to God, you're actually trying to save yourself. And therefore, your righteousness is a self-centered righteousness. It is a self-serving righteousness so that you don't need the mercy of God. But a Christian is somebody who repents of their righteousness. A Christian is somebody who recognizes that even their best deeds, even the best things that they do, is corrupted It is tainted with evil and selfish motives. A Christian is someone who can cry out with Isaiah, Woe is me. All of my righteous deeds are like polluted rags, filthy rags. Nothing do I bring. Simply to the cross I cling is the song of the Christian. And so that's the second thing. The Spirit convicts us of our righteousness. Third, the Spirit convicts us of judgment. So a Christian is somebody who knows that this world and all the achievements of this world will end. For there is coming a day of judgment. And all human beings will be accountable to God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, listen to this. Listen. While people are saying there is peace and security, suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. It's really an arresting image that Paul gives us, right? He's saying that in this world, the spirit of this world is that people are going about their business, and they're telling themselves, peace, all is well. Everything will be as it has always been. But the Bible says they are wrong. And one day, destruction will come upon them swiftly and and suddenly. The imagery here is that this wicked world is pregnant with the coming judgment. And so what does it mean to be convicted about the coming judgment? It means that there is a weightiness There is a sober-mindedness about the way you live your life. It means that your life is not your own, but it belongs to God. And every day, your prayer should be, God, what have you to do for me? How can I obey you? How can I serve your will, not my will? So that's the second thing, or... or, or that's the, uh, the, the end of the, 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 the second point. Final, last point. The Spirit makes us sons. This is really important. Look with me to verse 14. It's an astonishing verse. Jesus says, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I want you to know that we can spend all of eternity thinking about this and we will never exhaust the wonder in the depths of this. Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine. What is he talking about? He's talking about his relationship with his Father. He's talking about his Father's love. In John 3.35, Jesus says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. It's the same language. And so what the Son possesses, his greatest treasure, is the delight is the pleasure of the Father because He is the Son. And now here is the ministry of the Spirit. Jesus says, He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So this is the great work of the Spirit. He takes what belongs to Jesus. And what belongs to Jesus is that He is the beloved Son of the Father. And because we are united to Him by faith, Because we abide in Him and He abides in us. Therefore, what belongs to Him now belongs to us. And therefore, His sonship belongs now to us. And what the Spirit does is He takes that great truth and He presses it. He presses it and He presses it into our hearts that in Christ we are sons of God. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, listen to this. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts so that we might cry, Abba, Father. You see, Abba, Father is the intimate language of a son, of a little child speaking to his father. Do we know that language? Our greatest problem, our greatest problem is that we don't know we are sons of God. We might know it on an intellectual level, but we haven't experienced it in our hearts. We don't feel it in our bones. This is why we're angry all the time. This is why we're so anxious and we're so discontent with our lives. Because we don't know that we are sons. Imagine there's a little prince. And he is born to his parents. The king and queen. And they love him. He is the apple of their eye. But one terrible night, thieves break into the palace. And they steal the baby away. And then they raise this child to belong, to be part of their gang of outlaws, their gang of criminals. And as the child grows up, they tell the child that his parents abandoned him. That they found him lying naked in the streets, unwanted, unloved. And so this child grows up. And because he doesn't know he is the beloved son, He doesn't know that his mother and his father, the king and queen, 
had been looking for him all the days of his life. And therefore, when he grows up, he lives like a common criminal. And all his days are filled with fear and loathing. I want you to know that you and I, we are like that little prince who doesn't know that he is the beloved son. In John 14, verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. And so he sends us the Spirit. And what the Spirit does is he impresses in our hearts this great truth that we are sons of God. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones gave this great illustration. I love this illustration. He says, imagine that there's a father and there's a son and they're walking along a path. And as they're walking along, suddenly the father stops. He stoops down. He picks up his son. He gathers him in his arms. And then he covers his son with kisses and hugs and he holds him close. And after a while doing this, the father puts his son back down. And they continue down the path. Now, here's the question. What happened? In that moment, when the son was picked up, did the status of the son change? Did his legal standing change? And the answer is, no. The son was no more a son than before or after he was picked up But do you see the difference? Because when the son was picked up, oh, did he experience his sonship. He experienced the love, the radiance of his father's pleasure and his delight in him. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit picks you up into the father's arms. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, it's one of my favorite verses. Listen to this. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Did you hear that? God's love is poured. It's not these carefully measured allotments, but it's poured. It's this abundant flow. Some of you are saying, I wish I could have that. I wish I could know that my Father loves me like that. And I want to close with this final exhortation. Because Jesus does not leave us in the dark about how the Spirit works. In verse 13, listen to what Jesus says. He says, The Spirit will guide you into all the truth. In John 14, verse 26, Jesus says, The Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of all that I had said to you. And so here's what the Spirit does. The Spirit gives us Christ. The Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts through the Word. Through the Word. In John 15, verse 7, Jesus says, Abide in me, and abide in my 
word. Do you want to be a spirit-filled person? Do you want to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Then study the scriptures. Study and study and study the scriptures all the days of your life. And when you do, you will have moments, these sweet, wonderful moments, when you feel the Holy Spirit picking you up into the Father's arms, and you will know that your Father delights in you, and you'll feel the radiance of His love. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, When we look at our lives, we see weakness, we see fear, we see confusion. We confess that our greatest problem is that we don't know we're loved. We don't see how costly it was for you to rescue us. We don't know that we are the beloved children of the Most High. Give us the Holy Spirit. Fill us with his presence, his love. Give us this deep assurance that we belong to you. Revive our hearts. Wake us up from our slumber. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.